This fall, we're talking about the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of God is God's rule over God's people and God's place. God's ultimate mission is to unite heaven and earth uh, under King Jesus. And he calls us, he calls the church to be with and to learn from and to become like Jesus in the here and now. Jesus calls his followers the salt of the earth, the light of the world, not when we try to force the world to obey Jesus, but when we faithfully live out the way of Jesus in the church before the watching world. Today we're going to talk about kingdom mission. What exactly is it that we're supposed to be doing in the name of our king? What mission has Jesus given us to fulfill? What does that look like? The kingdom mission ought to be one of those things that unifies us, that that brings us together. Tragically, though, it's become something that divides us, at least in America. Starting about 100 years ago, there have been kind of two major camps in the American church that define the kingdom mission very differently. Uh, Scott McKnight calls them the skinny jeans kingdom and the pleated pants kingdom. So the skinny jeans crowd, which is often young and restless and progressive, describes the kingdom mission as good deeds done by good people, Christian or not, in the public sector for the common good. In other words, a kingdom mission is all about activism, doing good, making a difference, changing the world by changing systems and structures and laws so that everyone can flourish. The kingdom mission is, you know, digging wells in Africa and feeding hungry kids in the inner city and welcoming refugees into our communities and protecting the environment for future generations. And whatever, wherever people are doing good work, that's where the kingdom of God is. And if you're part of the skinny jeans crowd, then your hero is probably St. Francis of Assisi, who said, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words which usually means something like Christians are at their best when they're serving, not preaching. Walk the walk, forget about the talk. So according to the skinny jeans camp, kingdom mission is doing good in the public square. Now, obviously, doing good, doing justice is a huge biblical imperative. Caring for the poor, the widow, the orphan, the immigrant is absolutely central to God's heart. But the Bible never calls working for the common good, kingdom mission. And often skinny jeans types end up defining kingdom work without any reference to Jesus and without any reference to the church. All right, how about the pleated pants crowd? Uh, They are often older, uh, often theologically and politically conservative, and they believe that the kingdom is wherever redemptive moments are happening, wherever people are coming to faith, wherever people are being healed, or whenever chains are being broken or relationships are being mended, that's where the kingdom of God is. It's wherever redemptive moments are happening. If the pleated pants crowd has a hero, it's probably Billy Graham because of his emphasis on proclaiming the gospel and helping people to make a life-changing decision to follow Jesus. So there you go. You got the skinny jeans and you got the pleated pants. And who's right? 
Well, in a sense, they're both right. And in a sense, neither one of them really gets it. When you look at Jesus, it is so clear on every page of the Gospels that Jesus' mission is to bring holistic salvation to the whole world. Which is why on almost every page, Jesus is preaching the good news, right? He's offering forgiveness. He's offering salvation through repentance and faith. And he's healing the sick and feeding the hungry and welcoming the stranger and releasing the oppressed and giving sight to the blind and on and on and on. According to Jesus, the kingdom mission involves both good news and good works, both preaching and activity that promotes human flourishing. But both of these sides miss something really critical. The kingdom of God is God's reign over God's people, and so the kingdom is not primarily about social activism and making the world a better place. And it's not primarily about redemptive moments. The kingdom of God is a community of disciples who are learning how to be with and learn from and become like Jesus and who are empowered by the Holy Spirit to do what Jesus does. And therefore, the kingdom mission is to create and sustain and grow the church as an expression of the kingdom of God in the world. And we do this by both proclaiming the kingdom and making disciples and demonstrating the kingdom through works of justice and acts of merciful love. Both are essential. We're going to focus more on the proclaiming side today and more on the demonstrating side next week. But to get to the heart of this work of proclamation, we're going to look at two biblical texts. And before we do that, I, I want to give voice to a common objection that people have about this whole idea of proclaiming. The objection goes something like this. No one has the right to tell others what to believe. You shouldn't try to convert anyone. That's disrespectful. That's coercive. You can believe whatever you want, but just don't try to tell other people what they should believe. Maybe you've heard this before. Maybe you've said this before. The problem with this statement, of course, is that it contradicts itself. It's doing the very thing it forbids. No one has the right to tell others what to believe is itself a belief. And you're trying to convert people to your way of thinking. And I understand that we live in a pluralistic society, and there are lots of different belief systems, and lots of people have used their religion, they've used their morality as a weapon with which to coerce or bludgeon or condemn other people, and that is always wrong. But the solution is not to muzzle people's faith. That is a form of coercion. Tolerance is not about getting rid of your beliefs or keeping them behind closed doors. Tolerance is about how your beliefs lead you to treat people who believe differently than you do. The solution to intolerance isn't to become more secular. The solution to intolerance is to start respecting people with different beliefs. And Christianity provides incredible resources for living confidently and respectfully in a pluralistic society because Christians believe that we are sinners saved by grace, and so therefore, we're no better than anyone else. And we worship a Savior who forgives and dies 
for his enemies. So please, no matter what you believe, talk about your beliefs. Talk, talk about them, share them, but do so with gentleness and respect. All right, let's, let's look at our first text. It's found in Luke's Gospel, chapter 14. I'm going to get it started, and then uh, the guys in the back could, could keep it moving. That would be great. Luke, chapter 14. A man said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field, and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. And then the owner of the house became angry and ordered a servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and, and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there's still room. Then the master told the servant, go out to the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who are invited will get a taste of my banquet. The kingdom of God is a party. The desire of God's heart is to celebrate and fellowship with us, to delight in us as we gather around his table. God's kingdom is a place of warmth and hospitality and abundance and joy. It's a feast. Last uh, Sunday, one of our students, a, a sixth grade boy, came up to me after youth group and said, Pastor Bill, I have a deep theological question. I can count on one finger how many times a sixth grade boy has done that. My ears were perked. He said, you know, it seems like God is really obsessed with being worshipped and glorified. Isn't that selfish? Should I really give my life to follow someone who's so self-absorbed? What a great question, huh? I said, well, first of all, there's a difference between someone who wants glory and someone who deserves glory, right? He's like, yeah. I said, well, if we truly owe our lives, if we truly owe everything we have, this world, everything in it to God, then he probably deserves our glory. But here's the wonderful thing. When we give God glory... We experience joy. So if God is helping us to find our joy, is he really being self-centered? When we try to get glory for ourselves, glory that we don't deserve, we are being selfish. When we stand still and expect God and everyone else to revolve around us and meet our needs and, and prop us up, we end up using people, we end up making ourselves and everyone around us miserable. But when, God, but when we revolve around God and when we revolve around other people, that's what makes us alive. And of course, God never asks us to do something that he doesn't do. When Jesus left heaven and took on our flesh and became a servant and washed our feet and died in our place, 
Jesus was revolving around us. He wasn't standing still, was he? No way. He was glorifying his Father and serving us, and we were his joy when he died on the cross. Now, what does all this have to do with the parable? Well, God is passionate about his glory, and so he wants his table to be full. And God is passionate about our joy, and so he wants his table to be full. He wants us to share in his abundance and blessing, both now and forevermore. And sometimes we give people the wrong impression about God's kingdom. That it's all about us, it's all about what we do for God, it's all about our morality, our list of do's and don'ts. But the gospel is not good advice. The gospel's good news. It's about what Jesus has done for us that we couldn't do for ourselves. What we do for him is a thank you note. It's not an application. The kingdom of God is a party. It's a feast. And God wants his table to be full so that his children can taste and see his goodness and share in his abundance. See, God is the evangelist in this story. He's the one trying to persuade people to come to the party. And we're just the heralds. We just get to, to share the happy news that heaven's kingdom is available in the here and now, that, that we get to tell people that God sent Jesus into the world to rescue us and to reconcile us to one another and to himself. And when we share the good news of God's kingdom, we're inviting other people to the party. We're inviting people to taste and see God's goodness and mercy for themselves. We're inviting people to discover the source of all joy and to experience abundant life here and now. And this has huge implications for how we talk about Jesus. Starting, starting with our motivation. What motivates us? You know, the early church didn't have evangelism classes. They were just smitten with Jesus and couldn't stop talking about him. And they loved their neighbor so much that they didn't they didn't withhold Jesus from them. Authentic evangelism throws nat flows naturally out of our love for God and our love for our neighbor. You are already a passionate evangelist. Did you know that? Think about what you do when you see a fantastic movie. Think about what you do when you discover a new wonderful restaurant. What do you do? You call up your friends and you say, you have to see this. You have to try this. It's so good, right? That's what we do naturally. I'm a bit of a foodie, especially when it comes to the four main food groups, which is Thai food, ice cream, pizza, and buffalo chicken. <laughs> so whenever I discover a place that does one of those four main food groups well, I become a passionate evangelist. Why? Because it brings me joy and I want other people to experience, to share in my joy. I found the most amazing Thai restaurant. I don't like Thai food. Shut up, shut up, shut up. I'm going to tell you about it anyway. Right? When you're passionate about something, you can't be quiet about it. Now, if you're finding that it's difficult to talk with other people about Jesus, if your fear or discomfort is winning out over your love, the solution is to feast. Go back to the table. 
Don't beat yourself up. Don't read a book. Just spend time with Jesus. Rediscover his beauty. Get in touch with Jesus' self-giving love, his forgiveness, his justice, his mercy. Get in touch with his humility and gentleness, his strength and integrity and incorruptibility, his power over sin and death, his faithful love for you. Taste and see that he is good. Are you feasting with the Lord? Or are you going out into the world spiritually malnourished? What have you tasted? What have you seen of the triune God that is good, that satisfies and delights you? That's what you can share. That's what you can share with other people joyfully and authentically. You can say to someone, friend, I want so much for you to know how much God loves you. I want so much for you to taste his forgiveness. I want so much for you to know the security and peace that Jesus provides. I want that for you. Is that being disrespectful and coercive? I don't think so. The purpose of proclaiming Jesus is God's glory and our neighbor's joy. And that proclamation out of flow from our own joy in relation to Christ. Now, there's something else Jesus wants us to see from this parable. He wants us to expect that some people are going to say no. Some people are going to say, I'm so glad Jesus works for you. It's just not my bag. Or, I had some really bad Thai food in the past, and I'm just not ready to try it again. And if that happens, pray for that person. Who knows what God will do in their life? Who knows what opportunities you or other people will have down the road? Just don't take it personally. Don't be discouraged. Don't stop sharing the good news. Keep inviting people to the party. One of the things that I love about this parable is that God is not at all picky about who comes. Do you notice that? It's not like he's saying, oh, I would really like for these people to come to my party. These people, on the other hand, not so much. That's not, that's not what God says. He wants everyone to come to the party. He wants his table to be full. He wants all of his children to experience his grace and to share in his abundance and joy. And if the only people who show up are outcasts, and spiritual zeros, and people with bad breath, and two left feet, then so be it. Just make sure his table's full. By the way, 75% um, of Americans are reluctant to talk about their faith. On average, American Christians have less than 10 conversations a year about their faith. And only 2% of American Christians invite someone to church at least once a month. I think we need to start talking the walk. I think it's time that our joy in Christ and our love for others overcomes our fear. The kingdom of God is a feast and we get to invite people to the party. All right, let's look at our second text today. It's, it's 1 Corinthians chapter 9. It begins in verse 19. I'm going to read it in the message. And... Uh, you guys can keep it going. The Apostle Paul writes this. He says, Even though I am free of the demands and expectations of everyone, 
I have voluntarily become a servant to any and all in order to reach, reach a wide range of people, religious, non-religious, meticulous, moralists, loose-living immoralists, the defeated, the demoralized, whoever. I didn't take on their way of life. I kept my bearings in Christ, but I entered their world and tried to experience things from their point of view. I have become just about every sort of servant there is in my attempts to lead those I meet into a God-saved life. And I did all this because of the message. I didn't just want to talk about it. I wanted to be in on it. So Luke gives us kind of the why, the motivation for sharing our faith. Paul gives us the how. Paul says, look, I don't come in with a script. I don't come in with talking points. I don't have a program. What I have are relationships with people. All different kinds of people. And whoever I'm with, my first job is to listen to them. My first job is to enter their world and understand how they think and what they value and who and what has shaped them. And I look for common ground and I listen to the longings of their hearts. And after I listen deeply and curiously, I try to speak with them about Jesus in their own heart language. And I invite them to step inside the story and see Jesus from the inside. Friends, whenever we share Jesus, it is so important that we start with listening. And this takes time. And it requires genuine love and curiosity and a lot of patience. And when we share, we don't give people a formula for being saved. We point them to Jesus. Remember, kingdom mission is not about making converts. It's about making disciples. And we make disciples, not by presenting four spiritual laws, but by immersing people in the whole story of Jesus. And once again, we're actually better at this than we realize. Uh, what's the most complicated TV show you've ever been hooked on? Imagine that show. You know, you're several seasons in. By then, there are dozens of characters, dozens of plot lines. Pretty soon, it is impossible to understand what's going on unless you've been following the show from the very beginning, right? And then your friend says to you, okay, I'll try it. Show me the latest episode. And part of you is like, yes, woo, right? And then part of you is like, wait a minute, that's not going to work. It's not going to make any sense to you. No, no, no. We have to go all the way back to the beginning. We need to watch it from season one, episode one, right? Wouldn't make any sense if we started in the middle of season six, right? You have to watch the story unfold. You have to meet the characters and see how they develop. You have to understand the plot lines and the conflicts. And oh my gosh, oh, you're going to have so many questions. But it's okay. It's okay. I'll be here. We'll watch it together. We'll watch it all together. And, and you can ask me your questions and I'll do my best to explain everything. It's going to be so awesome. You're going to love it, right? Have you been there? You've been down this road with someone? If so, you already know how to make disciples. You already know how to immerse someone into a big story and patiently explain things and answer their questions and help them to understand what's happening and why until they can fully understand the story alongside of you. 
see it from the inside. Takes time, doesn't it? When it comes to sharing Jesus, typically the most urgent questions are not, so how does the story start? Typically the most urgent questions are, what does this mean? Why should I believe this? I had a bad experience once. Where was God in the middle of all that? Does the Bible say anything about this or this or this? And we help the disciple people by answering their questions, but also by questioning their answers, by helping them to examine their own ideas about meaning and identity, how to handle guilt and shame and suffering, where to find hope, who they think God is and isn't. And along the way, we listen, we empathize, we do our best to explain things. We admit when we don't have the answer. But we honor their questions and we search with them. I heard someone say that the average American who comes to Christ as an adult needs about 300 touches before they come to faith in Jesus. 300. And it's not going to all be your touch. Paul knew that better than anyone. Paul almost never ministered by himself. He almost always brought at least one person along, or he would meet in groups of people. And Paul often celebrated the role that other people played in the spiritual development of those he was discipling. In America, we, we tend to think about sharing our faith in, in highly individualistic terms. But quite often, the best evangelism happens in groups. Why is that? Because one Christian can show how Jesus changes a life, but a community of Christians shows the difference that Jesus makes in our relationships with one another, which is a powerful, powerful thing. You know, the early church experienced explosive growth through evangelism, and most of it happened not through the ministry of trained pastors and evangelists, but through ordinary people who were just living out the gospel together in community. The book of Acts shows the early church getting together every day, breaking bread, praying together, sharing their possessions, giving to any who had need. You look in on them and you see this fellowship of people who are joyful and generous. They're devoted to Jesus and to one another. And the result, says the book of Acts, is that the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. There's a synergy, there's a beauty in the Christian community that far exceeds what any one person could ever communicate about the gospel on their own. This can be true of a family that's just practicing hospitality, welcoming people into their home together. This could be a group of friends who serve together or a small group that confesses their sins and weaknesses and encourages one another and offers their unconditional presence and help. But there's a synergy and a beauty when we incarnate Jesus to one another. We make the gospel come alive we help people to see that Jesus is more than idea. He, he's a person who's alive and who's making us alive. And that kind of experience can be irresistible. By the way, all of our small groups are open. There's no such thing as a closed small group at College Church. And I'm wondering, if you're in a small group, are you inviting 
non-believing friends to come and explore Jesus with you. That would shake things up in your small group, wouldn't it? That would be awesome. That would get more of us involved in the joyful work of proclaiming and demonstrating God's kingdom, wouldn't it? Are there other believers where you work? What might it look like for you to live out the gospel together on the job? We don't have to do it alone. We can give people a window into how Jesus transforms our relationships with one another. Kingdom mission is not good works in the public square. It's not redemptive moments in private. The kingdom mission is the work of creating and sustaining and growing the church as an expression of the kingdom of God in the world. And doing that involves both proclamation and demonstration, both sharing our faith and doing justice, both good news and good works. But most of all, it's about creating a community of disciples who are learning how to be with and learn from and become like Jesus. Our mission as College Church, and it's printed in your bulletin, is to embrace and embody the transforming love of God through the making, maturing, and multiplying of wholehearted followers of Jesus. That's our mission. That's our calling. That's why we exist. And it's happening. It's bearing fruit. Not long ago, we celebrated nine baptisms, and every story was different. God used a 30-year friendship to bring Fiona to faith. He used the example and encouragement of parents to bring Luke and Mac to faith. Ty talked about the role that mentors played in his journey to Jesus. Nick shared about those who helped him to discern God's presence and purpose in his trials. Others talked about how Christian friends and the Christian community moved the needle in powerful ways. And baptism, of course, is just the beginning, just the threshold we cross into a new grace-sovereign country where we learn to bring all of life under Jesus' leadership. And we get to help each other do that too. And the beat goes on. We have a mission. Our mission is to live out the story of Jesus together, to proclaim the gospel and to live as though it's true to make disciples and do good works for God's glory and for our neighbor's good. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you for giving us a mission that's worthy of our lives. And thank you for giving us a template in your son to know what it looks like. Thank you for giving us your spirit that empowers us and sends us. And we pray that we would be captured by the story of Jesus and live it out faithfully together. In Jesus' name, amen.